The Energy Department's Inspector General says it's overwhelmed. The IG office can't keep up its oversight with the amount of money Congress has appropriated over the last few years. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me with why Energy's IG is not alone. But Jason, let's start with the Energy Department. Why is the IG struggling with oversight? Is it money? Energy received a huge budget increase from Congress because of four laws that Congress passed over the last year. The Infrastructure Investment Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS bill, and of course they got about a billion dollars for solar projects in Puerto Rico. That all being told, Energy's total budget went from just about over $44 billion in 2022 to more than, you ready for this, Tom, $478 billion in 2023. Now, that, not all of that is budget, so a lot of that is grant authority, too, but basically their their portfolio has risen by 10 times. It makes now, me want that, to start an electric bus company. At the very least, get yourself a Tesla, Tom. Yeah, you know right. you want one. Ten of them. All that money goes through programs or grants, and there's now there's more than 70 new programs and grants that have at least new or at least untested internal controls. Now, Terry Donaldson is Energy Department's IG. She says the money is moving very quickly, including $62 billion is out the door or the subject of potential funding opportunities. And that does create a host of new risks. So I noted when I took over this job a little over four years ago, the volume of reports all concluding that the Department of Energy lacked appropriate resources for oversight. And essentially all of those included the department acknowledging that it lacked appropriate resources for oversight. So it is against that landscape that all of this new money is now going to be distributed. The Department of Energy received in the IIJA a cap for most of the IIJA programs of only 3% for oversight, a little more flexibility in IRA, which is positive. Uh, But I would point out that those oversight numbers are largely utilized to move the money out the door because they're classified as administrative expenses, most of which are to help the programs get money out the door. Only a small percentage will actually be for oversight which is making sure that the funds landed where Congress intended them to land. Energy's IG Terry Donaldson says her shop is dramatically under-resourced to conduct this oversight already, and and adding hundreds of billions of dollars more only makes things a lot harder. All of these new funds came along, and now my shop is so dramatically under-resourced that I feel compelled to mention this any (laughs) time that I'm on the Hill. So my shop received zero additional funding Uh, in connection with uh, the CHIPS Act, zero additional funding in connection with the $1 billion for Puerto Rico, and we received only small numbers in connection with IIJA and IRA. It's something that will make it very difficult for us to conduct the audits, inspections, and investigations that are going to be so needed as we turn the corner into spending these massive amounts of money. I always say that uh, all of the coordination and planning in the world, and we are doing a lot of that right now. We've had over 27 meetings with the department since IIJA passed. But all of the coordinating and the planning in the world is not a substitute for people. You have to have the money to conduct oversight. Donaldson actually did some research, Tom. This is really fascinating. You can find this. I have a link to it on federalnewsnetwork.com. But when you look at the 24 CFO Act agencies, civilian side, the Energy Department's IG office is budgeted third smallest, only ahead of the Social Security Administration and the Education Department. And again, all this money come in, not a lot of money for oversight. Yeah, you'd think Congress or somebody would get it by now when they are still confronted with the amount of fraud from the pandemic 
various programs. They're still assessing that. And now there's, like you say, a half a trillion dollars more coming for handing out. What are the IGs and the other agencies facing? Is this kind of a common problem for those oversight offices? The other IGs who testified from similar science-based agencies, they're facing challenges, but not to the extent of energy. Sean O'Donnell, the IG at the Environmental Protection Agency, says their agency received about $100 billion through both the Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act. He says Congress did give EPA some dedicated funding for oversight under the Infrastructure Bill, but not with the Inflation Reduction Act. Additionally, EPA's Office of uh, IG continues to recover from a decade of flat or reduced funding. The IIJA gave the EPA $60 billion. Most of that is going through familiar funding mechanisms like state revolving funds. And so what we see are capacity issues at both the distribution and the recipients. Uh, But the IRA gave the EPA over $40 billion for entirely new programs that are going to entirely new recipients. And unfortunately for us, I think the biggest risk is uh, Congress didn't fund oversight of this. And I gave one example recently of of the Environmental um, Justice Office, which went from 12 components of about $12 million to now one component with $3 billion. I'm going to steal a term from Terry uh, Donaldson. That's faster money to newer recipients, and for we are, we are very concerned about that and, and, and the ability to do effective oversight of it. EPA's IG, Sean O'Donnell, also says EPA, the agency at large, also supports the reprogramming of funds to help with oversight. Now, all this, Tom, is nice, but there's still a lot of money coming in and that, that EPA is struggling to really get their heads around. The other IGs from the National Science Foundation, NASA, and the Transportation Department didn't specifically mention staffing or resource shortages. But again, if you look at Energy's data that they put out about funding for IGs, EPA and transportation are fourth and sixth, respectively, among all CFO Act agencies among the civilians. And NSF is still higher than energy as well. So they seem to be treated better than at least the Energy Department has over the years. You know, it's amazing. I mean, members of Congress sit through the presentations on the higher risk list. They hear and read GAO reports every year about the unsustainable fiscal condition of the United States. The appropriations go up every year. You would think it's a no-brainer to be able to track the money and make sure the oversight is there. But that's just me. What did the House Science Committee members themselves say about IG staff funding and all that? Unfortunately for these IGs, not a whole lot. They didn't really offer any real solutions. And I think part of that reason, Tom, is I think they didn't really understand the problem as much or or understand the concerns the IGs are facing to oversee all this money to get out the door. You know, Tom, we've seen a lot of hearings over the years, over the last six months or so, about waste, fraud, and abuse. But even subcommittee chairman Jay Obernati, he says he was unaware of energy's funding challenges for its IG. A couple things, I think, have become clear to me as a result of this discussion. You know, number one, perhaps there's an additional metric we ought to be looking at to figure out whether or not our inspector generals are adequately funded based on the amount of activity that they have to oversee. Uh, And also, I think that we here in Congress need to be more mindful uh, when we are awarding grant funding of making sure that we simultaneously award your offices the relatively modest in comparison amount of money that you need to conduct oversight of that funding. Again, California Republican Congressman Jay Obernoti. All right, there's the staffing issue. How else are inspectors general overseeing the tens of billions of dollars that are being allocated to these agencies, all this new money? Not surprisingly, Tom, beyond people, there's technology, always plays a big role. And then there's interagency collaboration, if you will, the sharing of best practices. Again, Energy's Donaldson says there are several ongoing actions to fight against fraud. We've launched a large-scale data acquisition and monitoring project, which will generate leads for audits and inspections. We've had approximately 30 meetings with the department 
Uh, we're not allowed to consult or advise, but we ask a ton of questions, a lot of them about the 71 new programs. So we're actively in the coordinating and planning. Uh, Mr. Soskin and I chair the group of inspectors general that received funding under IIJA, so we meet every month with the other inspectors general, share best practices. So we're doing everything that we can given our underfunded status. I think one of the other problems that Energy is facing, Donaldson says, is her data analytics platform capabilities are still very in the early stages, so she's trying to build those up over time. Over at EPA, O'Donnell says they're relying on data and the merging of databases more broadly. He says the biggest challenge is pulling that disparate data from those databases. A recent study found EPA uses 55 different databases to pull information from 100 grant programs. Obviously, Tom, when you have all those different disparate databases, it's hard to get your head around. Where is that data? How do I pull it together? Where do I get it from? And I think that's also another big problem. Well, not only that, I'll bet you half those databases are spreadsheets. They probably are Excel spreadsheets or some sort of Lotus <laughs> 1, 2, 3, if you remember, yep. to tag back to the 1990s. The other thing O'Donnell says that he's doing at EPA is encouraging more whistleblowers actually to come forward as they see potential or real problems. He reinvigorated an award program for whistleblowers and initiated a forthcoming program for, uh, at the EPA OIG office that will actually financially reward EPA employees to blow the whistle on waste, fraud, and abuse. Those are just a few of the highlights that came from it. There's other things going on, of course, across the IG community. And of course, Tom, there's a whole big push around data and analytics from the Pandemic Recovery and Accountability Committee, the PRAC. Uh, a lot of people want to see that expanded more broadly across the entire government. Sure. Maybe there's a chat GPT application that'll take care of the whole thing. You can only hope there's AI and ML in there somewhere. I'm yeah, sure right. that that's coming. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. 
And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where 
you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.